This is The Beat, the innovation podcast for the nation's capital, talking the latest tech, business, and startup news. And beer. With the DCNO team. I'm Sam. I'm Ryan. Let's get started. Welcome back to The Beat Podcast. We are here again for another great episode. We'll be talking later with NextGen Venture Partners, Lisa Cuesta. Looking forward to that conversation. But just a reminder before we get started to sign up for our daily newsletter, also called The Beat, by going to dcno.com and signing up on our homepage. What else we got going on, Sam? Yeah, so this week on The Beat, we have the end of Living Social in D.C. R.I.P. Um, rest in peace, dear Living Social. A tech entrepreneur's possible bid for Maryland's governor. And, of course, everything you need to know about NextGen with Lisa Cuesta. But first, let's have a beer. Uh, we, JK. We're recording early today, so no beer. I got a nice coffee from Filter. Good coffee. I have nothing. I have an iPhone. That's really sad. <laughs> By the way, if you haven't checked out my story on DC's coffee scene, you should probably do that. Go on dcno.com. I did a, a larger look into the recent emergence of a bunch of craft coffee shops and local coffee roasters. For those coffee fans out there, uh, you have more options than ever for yeah. great coffee, but I wrote a whole story on it, so you should probably go read yeah. it. All right, let's get right into this thing. Let's start off with some making moves. We're talking about Maryland governor's race, which is starting to heat up. There are a bunch of names being thrown around as potential challengers to current governor, Republican Larry Hogan. One of those names that came out this week is an interesting one, Alec Ross, yeah. who is a tech entrepreneur. He also served as uh, a senior advisor on innovation to Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, co-founder of the One Economy Corporation, which is a nonprofit focused on delivering technology to low-income populations both in the U.S. And, and abroad. And he sits on the board of a couple of local companies that our listeners may know, Fiscal Note and 2U. So his name's been floating around, you know, it's, he hasn't confirmed anything, but yeah. the, the original article was saying that he's kind of stepped up his social media criticisms of Larry Hogan as of late, trying to tie him to Donald Trump as much as possible, which is going to be the Democratic playbook right. in this next round of elections. So it, it could be interesting to see uh, he's you know a relative political outsider. He's worked a little bit, you know, obviously in the State Department, and then he was, I believe, involved with Barack Obama's campaign in 2008, but no elected experience himself. So I don't know. What do you what do you think about you know that idea of that tech entrepreneur outsider trying to break into the political world? Yeah, I mean it's not the first time we've heard of it. I mean you have you know little baby Zuck uh, over at Facebook and all the rumors are circulating. Mark Zuckerberg is 100 percent going to run for president. Is he? He's going on oh like my a, God. well, he's going on this like. Like listening tour yeah, or like something, Steve but it's even worse. It's like I'm gonna drive around the country and like stop in diners in Texas and talk to real people, and I I'm definitely don't have any ambition to run for. But anything. I also just see him being like, I need to know everything because I am more powerful than any other person. <laughs> like Maybe. I think I'm like I feel like he has that. It's ego. just a complex. Yeah, I feel like he runs Facebook. <laughs> well, yeah, but then why does he need to go? To Talk to random people in diners. That's like not something a normal person does. To expand his empire even further <laughs> than it is. I mean, anyway. So, so back to our original point. Alec Ross. You know, he's he would be one of a, a number of names that are kind of thrown around as you know, just the Democratic primary, yeah. which could be challenging 
in and of itself. But then you get to the real problem, which is that Governor Hogan is, is one of the most popular governors in the entire United States. He's got a 74% approval rating as of January. And this is obviously, uh, he wasn't even supposed to win, really. He, yeah. was, he was not the favorite in a traditionally blue state, but has done a pretty solid job of maintaining uh, bipartisan support. So definitely an uphill battle, I think, from you know, any Democratic challenger. Yeah. But it could be great to see some more injection of, of you know, the tech tech policy, of, of innovative ideas into the debate, at least, yeah. uh, should Ross decide to run. Yeah. Big one this week, Living Social. Oh, poor Living Social. So Living Social was once the, you know, the definition of DC tech. Of DC yeah. tech. It was, you know, at its peak, a huge company with, over 5,000 employees around the world, headquartered here. It was like why people came to work, or why, if they wanted to work in tech and wanted to go to D.C., it, that was like the only reason. Yeah. And it was drawing people in. Um, and it's had a huge impact, you know, not just its own business, but kind of the offshoots of it. We right. see um, people like Susan Tynan from Framebridge, who you know, left Living yeah. Social to start her own company. Um, Galley, we had a, a roundup yeah. a couple of months ago of you know, all of the local founders and, and executives at tech companies that, that got their start or at least put in some time at Living Social. Yeah. Obviously, they've had their struggles in recent years. They you know they tried to maneuver into this pivot, you know, have had rounds and rounds of layoffs, and then kind of culminated the other month with them getting acquired by their longtime rival Groupon, for what later turned out to be no nothing. money, nothing, nothing, no money, which is just shocking. And now it seems like it's it's coming to a close. Yeah. So the latest, they, you know, living or Groupon filed um, what is called a warn notice, which you file with any state entity. For us, it's district entity when you're about to lay off a considerable amount of people at your companies. That way, you know, unemployment offices are prepared, etc. They submitted a war notice for April 24th for about 95 people. 95 people in the um, district yeah, and that are quote-unquote Groupon employees. Exactly, which of course would probably mean living social, you know, the people who are left at living social. An update to that, as Groupon has reached out, they are saying that they submitted war notices for approximately... 30 living social employees, you know, that, and ultimately the notices will cover 95 people and res- will result in the closure of their D.C. office no matter what. And the rest are encouraged to apply to other Groupon, Groupon positions. Jobs. Yeah. It's just a sad ending. Yeah. So, uh, you know, even if it's not not technically the, the final, final, final yeah. uh, end, it, it's, you know, the de facto closing of the remaining piece of living social in the district. But, you know, like we said, they played a major role, and it's always tough to, to see Klein like this and for them to go out like this. But, you know, a lot of great impacts that they've had based on the people that they hired, the products that they were putting out at the yep. time, and, you know, the impact that they had on the, the larger ecosystem here as a whole. Our guest on the podcast today is Lisa Cuesta, uh, NextGen Venture Partners Vice President. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, exciting time for you guys. Uh, we had written on the site, there was some news that you guys finally closed your first venture fund of $22 million. This is kind of marking a shift from 
NextGen's origins as more of an angel investor network into a, a more established you know, VC fund. So talk to me a little bit about that, that genesis um, and, and what you're hoping to accomplish with, uh, with this fund now, uh, now closed. Yeah, sure. So NextGen's roots as an angel group really was a differentiated approach where we brought in a bunch of people that had experience working in tech themselves and wanted to start investing in local startups. And so seeing that concept evolve in, in D.C., folks from New York and Boston saw what was happening here and were really excited about it. And so we expanded beyond D.C. into those other cities. After about a year of that model, working with these local chapters that met with the local startups, we saw that there's actually a lot of benefit to bringing the expertise from across the different cities into one place. So now we have much more of a, a national approach. And so the investments that we're doing are geographically agnostic. We can bring in the venture partners that have the expertise from wherever they are. It's not necessarily people in New York that are looking at New York companies. It's people that have expertise in healthcare looking at healthcare companies. And so I think it's uh, it's really great because we have this network, this incredible network of people that have awesome experience, awesome connections. And that's not only valuable in the due diligence and investment committee process, but also after we make the investment, putting our portfolio companies in touch with potential partners, customers, uh, employees. And so it's been a pretty powerful powerful uh, experience, and I think it's really great that we have this network of people that can help our portfolio companies thrive after we make the investment. And that's that's somewhat of a unique model. Um, and so what are the, obviously the advantages are that you have geographic, ex, you know, widespread geographic uh, diversity, um, you know, I'm sure different industries represented throughout that. Um, what are some of the challenges of having that, that large base of um, partners and are there, are there issues you guys run into ever? You know, the model has evolved and we, we've been learning along the way. I was explaining to someone earlier today that it just feels like it's clicking right now. Uh, so we had two investment committees yesterday, one in healthcare and one in fintech, and we brought in people that you know, had really, really interesting perspectives and were able to ask questions that I wouldn't necessarily know to ask. My background is in largely consumer tech and e-commerce, and so I don't necessarily know all the nuances of the paper providers network in, uh, in healthcare. And so to get people that have uh, knowledge about that, that far exceeds kind of the people on the full-time investment team is, is pretty awesome. I think in terms of the challenges, just like seeing how this how this scales, we're kind of iterating and learning along the way. Um, and I think as we grow from over 650 venture partners right now to 1,000, I think that will obviously have some challenges because we're, we're, um, we're going to see that it's, it's harder to figure out who the best people to join the calls are, um, who can be the most value add to the portfolio companies, uh, can we get allocation for all the venture partners in the deals that we're doing. Uh, so the way that the model works is we actually invest with the fund, but then the venture partners can invest alongside the fund. And so if, if we have a case where we have a thousand venture partners and they're all interested in coming in on a deal, that's obviously going to be difficult and we'll manage that when that time comes. So walk me through a, a typical investment. Who identifies an opportunity? Um, and then where does the money come from? How does it end up making its way to a company? Yeah, sure. So there's a couple of different places where I think a deal can come from. So in a traditional fund, I think VCs are always out and about networking, meeting people. Luckily for us, we have this network of people that are 
in their local communities, meeting with entrepreneurs. Also, uh, because they are entrepreneurs or operators themselves, they have really vast networks and they have a sense of who's going to be starting companies, who to keep on their radar, and they are angels themselves. And so they invest outside of NextGen. And so they can tell us which one of their investments are actually doing really well. Tell us about and introduce us to the founders and then uh, we can take the conversation from there. So that's one path, just meeting through the venture partners. We can also meet through our own personal network. So um, I have in relationships with other co-investors, go to accelerators and demo days, uh, mentor at 1776. So I think it could come either through the full-time team or through the venture partners. Um, so after we get introduced to the founder, either me or Callum, our associate, will take the first call and you know, talk to the entrepreneur and see if we think it would be a good fit. If it is, we'll have another call with the with the partner, John Bassett, who's based in Austin. Um, and then if we decide that we want to move forward with an investment committee, we'll bring venture partners in that we think have relevant expertise, have them join for an hour-long call. It's a webinar, so it's all done virtually now. We have the entrepreneur present for the first 10 to 15 minutes, followed by about 40 minutes of questions, and then keep the venture partners on the call for follow-up and, and feedback after after the presentation's over. And you identify those people and, and kind of handpick them mm-hmm. yourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So then next steps after that, you know, once you make an investment, have decided to make it, um, what's the involvement of the partners after that? Yeah. So that's something that we've definitely been we've been uh, iterating on and I think along the way has been have been improving a lot so we want to be known as a, like we have the whole, most helpful investor like we want to be there to ask the questions that you wouldn't want to necessarily ask your board members the day-to-day things that you know what IT like outsourcing company should I use or what marketing uh, agency should I use like those kinds of questions we have this vast network of people that have done this before and so the uh, the entrepreneurs can come onto our platform that we've developed in-house and ask questions to the venture partners and get a response pretty quickly Um, We also have just recently started a board observer program. So um, we have board observer positions on all of our portfolio companies. And uh, in some cases, it'll be a full-time team member. So John, for example, is on the board of a couple of companies based in Austin. But then we also have um, opportunities for our venture partners to sit on the boards. So we have have that... had, that's already been done kind of informally, but now we've set up a formal program in order to kind of systematically do it. Pre-fund and now post-fund, what, what are some of the biggest changes that are going to happen with your investment strategy or um, you know, the involvement of the partners? Yeah, so I think pre-fund, we were getting involved at the friends and family angel rounds. Uh, we were getting involved very early on. I think now we're more of a traditional seed investor, so we're looking for a bit more market validation. We want to see real traction. It's like kind of post uh, product, not pre-product, where it's just an idea and kind of two people working on something. So I think that's the biggest change in, ter- in terms of stage. And I think in terms of focus, like we still have a generalist approach. I think other than early stage, we can look at a lot of different kinds of companies. And I think what makes it us more flexible is that we have the venture partners that we can lean on in order to understand and get up to speed on certain industries pretty quickly. Um, so the the fund had 83 investors in it, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a fairly sizable number. Mm-hmm. Um, were most of these people uh, current partners, or did you bring in new investors into the fund? Yeah, so we do have an institutional investor that is kind of the anchor LP that uh, gave us the 
the the anchor, I guess, to start going out and fundraising. So that is Brown Advisory up in Baltimore. They are huge supporters. Brett is actually up there today um, meeting with the team, and we have regular meetings with them. The investment team meets with their portfolio uh, managers and their analysts to get a better sense of how their research and what they're seeing in the public markets might inform our investment decisions. So that's an incredible uh, resource for us to have. In addition to that, we have folks that are high net worth individuals, family offices that have also invested. And then um, those are kind of outside of our venture partners. And then a small group of our venture partners are also LPs. And then, you know, with with kind of that larger number of 83 people, how does that affect, um, you know, a return on investment? Uh, so it uh, is based on kind of how much they've invested in the fund. So okay. it's, it's proportional. Okay, got it. Um, some of your portfolio companies that, that local listeners might know, Urban Stems, Avizia, um, Virgil Security, you know, these are across a, a whole different number of, of industries. Yeah. Um, you know, what are you seeing as, as some of the particularly promising um, you know, local sectors that um, you're keeping an eye on for the next you know, five, ten years? Yeah, so I have been in and out of D.C. since 2010 and have always wanted D.C. to have like a thriving tech scene. And I'm super excited because I feel like in the time that I've come and gone to go to grad school, it's really evolved a lot. And there's a huge support system now. I'm involved with organizations like Veneta, um, 1776, NextGen, obviously. And I think these organizations have really been helpful in giving the infrastructure and support to the startup community. And then you're starting to see more attention from external uh, parties like TechCrunch Disrupt was here a couple of weeks ago. So I think that that's all really great. Um, and I think that DC has a lot of talent and people came in in the past, you know, two, two terms for Obama and I think they're sticking around and that's really exciting because I think people that traditionally maybe have would have cycled in and out because DC is a pretty transient place are now deciding like DC is a pretty great, great place to live and actually staying and building companies here. Um, so that I think historically... D.C. was probably known more for, you know, cybersecurity, just given the presence of the federal government and NSA and those organizations. But I'm hoping that over time it'll become more diverse with, uh, you know, companies like FrameBridge and Urban Stems and Social Tables, which are more for consumer and enterprise customers. Yeah, I was going to say, when you have you have a different um, mindset, maybe, from people who were not always on that tech track, um, that would probably add some some diversity. Um, but I, I think, you know, besides those companies you just mentioned, there are a, a few good examples of more consumer-facing tech, but not as much as you see in, in other markets. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think that's going to change or if, if we're going to continue to rely on these kind of anchor um, industries that are the more, the more boring, more below the radar, but, you know, very successful companies. Yeah. I think that founders are very responsive to what they're hearing from investors and from uh, other uh, other entrepreneurs in the area. So I think you know once we get more successful consumer companies, that'll give uh, the, either employees that are working there who have seen that success and want to break off and do their own thing. That happened with Living Social. You know, Susan from Framebridge came out of Living Social, mm-hmm. as did Galley. So I think you know when there is success and there's successful exits and these companies grow, it's really great for the whole ecosystem because employees who went through that growth can then feel the confidence and have the network in order to start their own thing. So I'm hoping that that happens. It doesn't happen overnight, and I think that um, we'll see it kind of in the medium term. So. Going forward with uh, with next gen, you know, what are some of the um, I, you probably can't name specific companies that are on your radar, but um, you know, what are you looking at 
more industry-wide, more nationwide as, as themes that are emerging um, when considering investments? Yeah, so uh, even though we are generalists, I think that there are certain areas where we tend to see a lot more activity, and uh, that might be because it's reflective of what's going on and the opportun- opportunities available, uh, available for startups or because um, of maybe how we're building out the network. But I think uh, three areas in particular where, or I, I guess there's four things that we're kind of looking at pretty regularly. So one is healthcare. So obviously just the changing environment, the uh, the kind of system as it is isn't working. And so there's a lot of startups that are coming in trying to fill the holes. Two of the of the three recent investments that we've done, two of them have been in healthcare. Uh, one is more on the consumer side. It's a company called Everly Well based in Austin. And then another one is based in San Francisco. And it's basically trying to disrupt the pharmacy benefit manager space, which is super complex, super entrenched. I've um, heard healthcare is complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm getting ramped up on that pretty quickly, uh, just given our investments. And I hope to learn more about it and just be able to evaluate these deals faster and more efficiently. But that's definitely one, one ser- sector. I think another thing is like, IoT sensors, machine learning, big data, uh, closing the loop between online and offline data, which is ironically kind of where I started my career when I was at Google, um, and and now I think it's actually happening. And there's more, there's a per, uh, proliferation of these sensors and devices out in the real world, and um, companies that are actually starting to take advantage of that and build uh, real cool, really cool applications on top of it. Uh, another area is just like enterprise SaaS, so that's really broad, and mm-hmm. that's like a lot of our companies that. Um, are helping companies just operate better and move things to the cloud. I think, you know, Salesforce started that, you know, two decades ago at this point. Um, And some industries have been slower to get there. So you'll see like real estate tech, for example, really, really slow um, to actually pick up on on, on cloud-based solutions and on, and they're working with, you know, legacy solutions that are really uh, not not robust and not flexible, and so I think that there's still a lot of opportunity there. And then, lastly, just like marketplaces, like where can we make these connections between these two parties that want to get a transaction done? So those are the areas where we're, where we tend to be spending our time. So you uh, were in school up in Boston. You were you know, working for Google out in San Francisco. Um, you've spent time in DC. What do you see that's unique about DC as a market when it comes to, to innovation and technology? Yeah, so I think one thing is that I'm super, super excited about. I just read The Upstarts, and it's this book about the rise of Airbnb and Uber, and it's awesome. I really recommend it. But it just shows how important uh, how important working with the government is. And I think in the past, startups used to avoid it because it, it can be very intimidating and very challenging, and you need to know the right person. But it's... I think the online world and the offline world are coming together more now than they used to, and so you actually have to deal with regulation earlier. And so you see, um, you know, Google has a massive office here, Facebook, Uber has a huge office here, um, and the tech companies are starting to recognize that like it's important to actually have a relationship with with folks in DC and with the government, and also vice versa. And people in DC are starting to go out there a little bit more. So I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that the two are talking because when I was here in 2010, I felt like that wasn't the case. And that was what, that's how I wanted to build my career. I wanted to like be the bridge between DC and SF. And I'm glad to see that things like the bridge, which is a newsletter that's actually making that connection are coming about and informing the two coasts on how they could work together. Um, so I think that, you know, I'm a big believer in Rise of the Rest, Steve Case. I've been like following that for a while. I think that good, good ideas can come from anywhere, and I think that DC is part of that. And I think 
uh, the fact that tech companies out in the Bay Area are starting to come here more is awesome. And I think that DC will have a huge advantage just being surrounded by those, um, by the tech companies coming out here and then also the government agencies that have been here. Um, you know, one thing that we've, we've uh, heard from local companies is that it's tough to get later stage funding from local investors, that they have to go out of the market, usually to San Francisco, mm-hmm. to, to raise you know significant capital on top of what they have built up. Um, what role do you see NextGen potentially playing in really highlighting not just DC companies, but companies elsewhere across the country for the investment side and saying, hey, you, you should be looking outside of San Francisco, you know, you should be looking at these places. Um, you know, how can you help facilitate that? Yeah, I think that that's an incredibly important role that investors play for the companies that they invest in. They have to find the right partners for them at various stages of their growth. So in the early stages, we want to be your partner to help you get those initial customers, to help you find the advisors that are really going to ex- ex- accelerate your growth in the early stages so that you can get to the point where you're raising that later stage of financing. Um, and I think that we can facilitate both because we participate in follow-on rounds, we'll be a partner kind of along for the ride, but then also make introductions to investors that might be a good fit. And I think that's a, an important role that investors play for the companies in their portfolio. They have to be uh, looking out and, and finding uh, who the right per- person would be or right company would be um, kind of ahead of the financing cycle and make those introductions and get on those radars kind of before. So, for example, one of the companies that we just invested in is is looking to raise their Series A later this year, and we are already starting to start to initiate those conversations with investors, both in D.C. and outside. Um, I want to go back to this this idea of, um, you know, internally building an investment um, committee for, for um, you know, each of your investments. You know, obviously, expertise uh, in an industry is kind of like the overall important factor. Do you guys also do anything around diversity in terms of um, gender, race, uh, other types of things when considering who to put on a committee like that? Mm, interesting. So I, I don't think we explicitly talk about it. I mean, this is something I'm super, super passionate about as a woman and a minority in BC. So uh, it's definitely something that I I think about and the team is super, super supportive. So that's amazing. I think that the network in general gives people that historically may not be able to do venture investments the opportunity to invest. And um, I think that that's pretty powerful. So we have you know, a lot of women, a lot of minorities in our network. And I think, you know, we don't necessarily set up the investment committees with that kind of lens in mind. We just want to get the best people on the call. But um, we also have the option to opt into investment committee. So if we don't explicitly reach out to you because we don't think it's a good fit, if you've invested in a company and we just don't know about it and you have a perspective on a healthcare company, then you can opt into the investment committees. So there's a bit of a balance between us doing outreach and then also having people opt in and and self-select into investment committees. Got it. Um, so you said that your goal, you know, for the near future is is a thousand um, mm-hmm. venture partners. What does the future look like? Even beyond that, um, more more funding, more rounds. Um, what are we looking for? Yeah, yeah. So I think you know we just want to be really, really successful with this first fund. We're super excited. I tell entrepreneurs that we are also a startup in a lot of ways, um, and kind of hustle in the same way that startups do to get into the best deals, to find the best venture partners, to prove ourselves, to get our name out there, and to really. Uh, add value to our portfolio company so that they'll go on and, and you know speak highly of us to other entrepreneurs that they know. So 
fund one is the goal for sure, and that's what we're focused on today. But going forward, I mean, there's opportunities to expand this to other asset classes, whether it's growth stage VC and moving kind of later down the chain, but still doing tech. We also think that there's an opportunity to move into um, more traditional PE, potentially real estate, who knows? I think right now we have enough on our plate, but I think the big vision is to potentially bring this model to other other kinds of investment opportunities. Well, Lisa Cuesta, NextGen Venture Partners Vice President, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. That about wraps it up for this week on The Beat Podcast. A reminder, again, if you want more of The Beat, go to dcinno.com, sign up for our daily newsletter. And Tech Madness voting is happening now. We have moved past the first round. My bracket is, it's holding up okay. I got three of my four final fours that are still in the running. I never made a bracket, but any company I said would go far got knocked out in the first round, so I'm just going to stop naming companies. The saddest thing for me is that our, our Chicago general manager, Will, was in town and he filled out a bracket. And he's currently leading. Yeah. And his he was basically like, I just picked and pizza and track maven because they have a corgi on their logo. And he oh has like God. the highest rated bracket right now. So that that was disappointing to me. I mean dogs. But anyway, uh, second round voting happening now. Get on our site. There's a post up uh, with with the bracket. Um, really cool thing. You can kind of fill out, see your predictions, track all the way through. But. You know, it relies on you, listeners, readers, to uh, make sure we get the get those companies into the next round. We'll see who who ends up making it, but keep track of that. That's it for this week. And thanks for listening.